Hey friends, you are listening to or watching the No Water Methodists podcast, and I'm glad you are. We have now exited the season of Christmas and begun uh, ordinary time for about five weeks before Lent begins, and so that means it's time when we can uh, uh, kind of catch up on things or uh, focus on things. I've been using ordinary time to just preach through different books of the Bible that people may or may not know, and this is going to be the first of a series on Colossians. It's a, a book that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, which is meant to accompany a, another letter sent to the church in Laodicea. I explain a lot of the the pertinent facts around that in today's segment, so um, hopefully that's useful to you. It deals with some kind of unique stuff that is not addressed elsewhere in the Bible, and um, I'm hoping that a lot of people can listen. It's it's going to be a four- or five-part series. I'm hopeful that a lot of people can listen through it because it is going to be very helpful so far as discerning a biblical mindset that is not two-dimensional and either-or, but actually allows for some nuance and navigation between extremes. I don't know if you know anybody like this, but there are a lot of people who cling to an unhelpful extreme in their religious life that unnecessarily separates them from other believers. And I feel strongly that that all true believers should be unified, and that's really only accomplished whenever we let the Bible tell us what the important things are and where there needs to be a middle ground that's navigated. So um, in, in this book, that's what the foundation is laid for this particular series. So if you want to be in prayer for our church, um, things are going really well, but um, if you're benefiting from this ministry or other ministries connected to this church, then I would just invite you to continue to be in prayer for us that we can discern God's will for how to minister to this context in Nowata. God's been very good to us. Uh, we're daily experiencing His blessings, and we don't want to take that for granted, but want to use and steward what He's given us wisely. So that's a good prayer to say for us. And then um, we're still discerning our place in the Global Methodist Church, this new denomination that's just gotten its feet off the ground, and uh, want to continue praying for them, and then praying for us as we discern how it is that we want to be in fellowship with them. So appreciate all your time and attention on the ministries here, and as I said it, I really mean it. I hope it's a blessing to you that you're growing in faith as you walk alongside us. If you live far away, I'm always going to urge you find a local church where you are that's biblically obedient where you can walk in fellowship with others. But in the meantime, we're glad to encourage you, and we hope that, that you grow in faith as, as you spend time with us. Okay, we are now set to uh, read Colossians, which is to be found on page 1828. We are only doing the first chapter today, and I'm going to spend a good deal of time just setting it up. There are things that we don't see unless we read it in depth, and we're, I'm going to try and do it in depth, but I'm going to make sure that you know the things that I did not know um, when I was making myself my way through this stuff. Uh, before I begin preaching, just want to acknowledge uh, Susan and then Mary Callison and John and Nita and Kelly all having joined us since I acknowledged uh, our audience, although some people are dipping out. Don't dip out. Stay with us. This is important. All right, so we're on page 1828 of your Pew Bibles. And uh, before we get started, I just had a couple maps that I wanted 
us to look at because this is a letter written by Paul whenever he was imprisoned in Rome near the end of his life. He wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. I always thought Colossae came from the same root as like Colossus, which was a big ancient monster, but apparently it came from a word that meant, the, the word was Colossinus, and it meant purple wool. So um, go back, go forward a couple pictures, and then we'll come back. So this is kind of the region that we're in. Um, it's called the Ly, L-Y, Lycus River Valley, okay? So there's a river coming through, and there's a valley, and there were three different towns that are mentioned in the Bible. Let's go back now to the first one. Um, this marks, and you're not going to quite be able to see it. That's too bad, but it shows the, the churches mentioned in Revelation. All of them are in Asia Minor here. The, the Roman area is called Phrygia, P-H-R-Y-G-I-A, and... Um, Colossae is not one of them, but it's southeast of one of them, Laodicea. And Laodicea is going to be mentioned in this letter. Paul apparently writes them at the same time and says, I want you to switch letters to minister to each other. So these, these uh, and I'll regurgitate this when we come to it, but there was a guy from Colossae that came down to Ephesus whenever Paul was planting the church in Ephesus. He received the good news, and then he went back to his hometown, Colossae, and he started making disciples there and Laodicea and another town close to there called Hierapolis, all down in this river valley a couple miles from each other. Um, I'm going to, so that you know I'm not just making all this up, I'm going to read a little bit out of this book, the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Here, let's go to that map I skipped over, the second one. That one is, um, you see Colossae, yeah, that one's better. It's at the bottom right. You'll see Laodicea to the northwest of there, and you see those are rivers that are in there. So this is in a river basin where they have a bunch of sheep. You know, it's named after the wool that they generate there. This was a city 300 years before this letter was written. Well, let me read this. Uh, Colossae was located in the southwest corner of Asia Minor, in what was then the Roman province of Asia. Herapolis and Laodicea were situated a few miles away. All three were in the Lycus River Valley. A main road to Ephesus to the east ran through the region. So that's, that's how they came to be exposed to the gospel. Uh, it was prominent during the Greek period, but by Paul's day it had lost much of its importance, perhaps due to the growth of the neighboring cities, Extremely detrimental to all the cities of the region were earthquakes, and occasionally those did severe damage. Shortly after Paul wrote Colossians, the entire Lycus Valley was devastated by an earthquake. That was in the year 61. That probably ended the occupation of the city. So if you notice that picture I took, you don't see any ancient ruins or anything. They've tried to dig it up. They've found it. There's not much left because an, uh, an earthquake just demolished the whole place. But the thing, the reason that I think, well, I'll read a little bit more. The reason, uh, the region included a mixture of people native to the area, Greeks, Romans, transplanted Jews. The church probably reflected the same diversity. As far as we know, Paul never visited Colossae, so this is the only church he wrote that I, I, I think, no, this is the only church he wrote that he never visited, he didn't plant. So yeah, he's in Rome, he's about to be executed. He's heard about them and their particular struggle, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute. And he's decided he needs to write them to help them get through this struggle. Paul's influence was felt, however, during his ministry in Ephesus. That's in Acts chapter 19, if you wanna go home and read about that, or if you're at home. Well, don't read it yet, pay attention to me. The letters uh, to Philemon and to the Colossians include, indicate that many of Paul's fellow workers had 
worked among these churches in the Lycus Valley. As a result, the relationship between the apostle to the Gentiles and the Colossian church was close enough that when trouble arose, some of the church turned to Paul for instruction. So that's, that's what this, the purpose of this is. The church is growing leaps and bounds throughout the region, but he's writing to this town, Colossus, Colossae, which um, is in decline. It's been in decline for a while. And this is why I think uh, we in Nowata need to listen in particular, because Nowata used to be a booming town back in the day, right? It was an oil town. It was full of money. It was full of activity. But it's been in slow decline for decades, right? And there are some people who might be of the mind that God only cares about places where things are booming and happening, and that is not the gospel. Paul took time to write to this town in a declining area because he cares about what happens there. God cares about what happens here in Nowata. Amen? And whenever we're coming to the faith, we're not coming assuming that we're doing it all right and it really doesn't matter. Rather, we need to remember things are at stake here in Nowata, Delaware, Nowata County, northeastern Oklahoma, that, that matter. The Bible has been written to correct us and keep us in line, and we need to be listening. Now, the, the problem that I have now is the problem that he's writing to Colossae about is not necessarily something super common that we see in Nowata, and that's that they were really into knowing all about the angels, praying to some of the angels. They were kind of what they're called Gnostics. There were people in this time like Valentinus who came up with these whole ranks of angels that connected humans to God, and so you had to know their names, and you had to know how to please them in order for your prayers to reach God. And Paul is going to correct that. He's going to say, nope, Christ Jesus is our only mediator, and we have direct access to them. There's nothing wrong with angels. Angels are real, and they're powerful. However, when we have direct uh, access to Christ Jesus, then we are fools to worry about angels. And it's not just that they're wasting time. It's that they're getting snobby about it. I know nobody is like that ever here, but some people get snobby about faith. They say, oh, you're so silly. You, you don't do things the right way. You don't observe the right holidays. You don't have the right disciplines. And Paul is going to roundly uh, correct that. He's, he's going to focus on the essence of faith and talk about you know, how these people have completely missed the ball. So now, broadly speaking, that is something that people everywhere struggle with. We, we have a hard time keeping the main thing the main thing, and then letting secondary and tertiary things matter, but not as much. You know, Jesus corrected the Pharisees all the time. He said, you'll strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Uh, the notion being that we do not emphasize things properly. We don't focus on the big things in a big way and the small things in a small way. We get all messed up about it, and that's what scriptures are for. They help us to focus on the main thing. The main thing Colossians is going to help us to focus on is, am I being faithful? Am I resting in the faith of Christ Jesus? Do I have a right to expect salvation or not? And so he's going to get right into it in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. We've heard a lot about Timothy. Two books are written to Timothy. We'll hear more about Timothy uh, a lot in the future. He's an important person to know, but in this book, he doesn't figure in. He's just part of writing this letter. Number two, verse two, to God's holy people. What's, a, what's another word for holy people? Saints. He's writing, and that's the Greek word here, hagios. The holy people, to the holy ones, the ones that are sanctified, and Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? This is something I read like four commentaries this week. All of them pick on the brothers and sisters thing, and I know we hear it all the time. Adelphoi is the, the Greek word. 
It's not phony. And this is something that we need to remember. Christ Jesus said that we would be known by our love for one another. They will know you're Christians by your love, he said. And he prayed before he was apprehended for our unity. The notion being that when we show up for worship, it's not as a bunch of people who don't really know each other, but that we know and love one another. And we call each other sister and brother, not because we're being phony or have good intentions, but because we actually love each other like family. Family are the people that you're stuck with and you can't leave. They're the ones you're committed to, the ones you don't abandon. And the notion here is these people, because they have all been committed to Christ Jesus, are also committed to each other. They're saints out of their relationship to Christ. They're brothers and sisters together. He's saying, if that's you, I'm talking to you. That's the nature of the church. We are made holy by God, and we're bound together in holy love to one another. If that's not the relationship we currently have with our church, then the pastor's job is to say, it should be, you need to grow in that direction. That's how this whole thing works. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring up from the hope, you see that, faith, hope, and love? Those three Christian virtues. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. So he's saying, we've heard about your faith. It's been brought back to us. So we're praying for you all the time. We hear about the faith, hope, and love there, and that results in a treasure that's kept for you, not here on earth, but in heaven. Does anybody know how to get up to heaven to steal someone's treasure? No. It's more secure than any bank. That's the notion that you're getting here is that because of what Christ has given you, nobody can take it from you. Nobody can steal it from you. It can't be robbed from you. It's kept for you in heaven. Nobody can take it. Verse 6, uh, it's the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing through the whole world. So we're going to come to this notion of bearing fruit time and again. Of course, it's using a metaphor of a tree, right? You and I are trees, and the question is, are we bearing fruit? And whether you're talking about the sayings of Jesus or throughout the New Testament, the notion of bearing fruit is always your works, all right? So the, are you doing works good and pleasing to God or not? That's the measure of if you have a true and lasting faith. Now, you can't do any good works outside of saving faith in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of people who try to do it, but it's so ruined by their sinful nature, it doesn't please God. So here he's going to talk about the essential nature of true faith and that being evidenced by bearing fruit in your life. And he's going to talk a lot more about that. So if you're curious about that, just stay tuned. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you all, y'all, since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. I got corrected. I don't know how many of you watch the, um, the podcast that I do week to week, but I was talking with a Methodist scholar this week named Ryan Danker, and he was talking about reclaiming the Wesleyan notion of grace. And the definition I've always had is the unmerited, undeserved, free gift of God. I've talked about that several times from the pulpit. Should be familiar. I said, that's, that's a good definition, right? And he said, no. He said, that's, that's not nearly enough. He, he says, John Wesley's definition of grace, the biblical definition of grace, is the power of the Holy Spirit working in the world. To which I didn't argue, but that's just too vague for me. I, I like having a, a very specific notion of, I don't deserve it. God gives it freely. I think that's absolutely essential. So I don't think there's anything wrong with my definition. 
I haven't stored, uh, steered you wrong. Uh, in the end, I kind of nailed him down, and he just said, I just think that's too, too two-dimensional for a three-dimensional thing, which my answer is what is when it comes to faith. You know, we do our best with the words that we've got. They're never sufficient, right? But here he's talking about since the day we fully understood God's grace, and that's the unmerited free gift of God. That's also the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Whenever we understood that, we came to understand that we're a part of a growing faith. So here in America, right now the Christian faith is declining, right? Numerically, at least, fewer and fewer people are saying that they belong to the Christian faith. Fewer and fewer people are confessing Christian doctrinal uh, uh, realities. And so we might see that, oh man, God hasn't been faithful in this promise where Christianity is shrinking. When you look globally at what's happening, Christianity is growing leaps and bounds. It's, 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 it's astounding how fast it's growing, how it speaks to every single culture. And it doesn't travel through coercion like Islam. Islam is also growing leaps and bounds, but it operates through force. Christianity operates by appealing to one's spirit, which God acts upon and causes them to come in true faith. That's the Christian notion, the Wesleyan notion of preventing grace. We're all born in evil. We're all born in sin, inclined towards evil continually. It's God who reaches out to us first and says, hey, wake up, so that we receive that faith. And even in the, when there's no one to bring it to us, Right now we're seeing in places like Iran, God will send Jesus in dreams. They will encounter Jesus while unconscious, and they'll be brought to the church in that way. It's an amazing thing that God does to claim souls for him, and he's doing it. And I honestly believe there's another revival coming around the corner in America, and I just think a lot of bad things are going to happen first. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras. Okay, so this is the guy that's the native of Colossae that came and was converted by Paul in Ephesus. Epaphras has now gone back to Colossae, Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea. He's planted churches there from the faith that he received through Paul as a servant. And so Paul calls, calls him our dear fellow servant, who is faithful minister, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. These words are unconditionally good. Paul is very pleased with the word of Epaphras. Epaphras has done a very good job planting these churches, but it doesn't matter how close you are to Jesus, how good a job you've done, Satan has a way of distorting things, right? And they need correction. And ideally, Epaphras would be up to the task of correcting them, and they would be up to the task of listening. But sometimes you have to get someone from outside involved. And that's why our church is part of a larger network of churches with bishops. Bishops have to get involved in the local church sometimes when people get real screwy. And if they won't listen to the pastor, sometimes, you know, y'all outnumber the pastor, don't you? You could easily overrule me. And submission doesn't come easily, and it's real easy to say, no, the pastor's wrong, we got to stand against him. And sometimes the pastor is wrong, right? In which case you need a, a bishop to remove that pastor. But other times the congregation is wrong, and the pastor is just too stupid or something to communicate that, and somebody else needs to step in and say, no, 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 you're understanding it wrongly, I need to correct you, in which case, hopefully, the people receive correction. That's what this letter is about. Paul can't get them to, to them bodily, so he's writing them a letter about where they're off base and where they need correction. This is not an angry letter like Galatians. We've read some angry letters in the past. He's going to be real gentle here, but he's also going to be very clear. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We, have, uh, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. 
so that you may lead a life, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit. You see that theme? It's going to be a theme. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? There was a lot there, and we need to mind that just to make sure that we're, we're getting out of it. What His prayer is, I'm praying that you'll get knowledge. And you remember in 1 Corinthians, a lot of people, they try and hold Scripture together, but they, they don't let context determine it. So they say, well, in 1 Corinthians, he spoke against knowledge. What's he doing here? He's, contra- he's not contradicting himself. This is the kind of holy knowledge, or it's better to think of it as wisdom. In, in 1 Corinthians, he warned against worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge. He said that, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so he's not speaking against love, but he's saying what we know about God matters because that informs our relationship with God and others. What you believe about God informs everything about the, how you live, right? Our, what we believe and how we live are not disconnected. What, what, your story, what you understand the story to be, determines how you participate in that story. So he's praying that they would know the true story, the gospel, and have that knowledge of who God is because it results in all these things. The Spirit gives that knowledge so that you may lead a life that's worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Well, that's a high bar, isn't it? Do you think he's serious about that? Yeah, if he's not serious about it, he don't write it. It wouldn't be in the Bible. We're supposed to lead lives that please God in every way and are worthy of him. That's what we're aiming at. We're bearing fruit in every good work. That's to be our way of life. We're supposed to continue growing in knowledge of God. Do you ever know enough about God so that you can just quit and focus on something else? No, that's silly. So that we'll be strengthened with power. Is the Lord powerful? Yeah, it don't always look like worldly power, but he's powerful and we need to be strengthened as well so that We have endurance and patience. Are these things we've heard about before? It's all over the New Testament. We have to endure and be patient in the midst of persecution and trial. And not only that, it says giving joyful thanks in verse 12, doesn't it? So in one of the commentaries I read, it said we need to learn. You remember James, it begins saying that uh, these trials produce endurance and that results in thanksgiving, right? When we understand the nature of trials and persecution, we understand that those are sent from God for our good. And we say, thank you, God. I need this. It is a very unworldly way of living. Hebrews says God disciplines the one whom he loves, right? And yet whenever discipline comes, we go, oh, God, why? And the answer is because it's good for you. Because it glorifies God and it can bring you closer to him. But that's a decision you have to make. Are you going to let these things take you from God or bring you closer to God? The same water that hardens the egg softens the potato, right? You have a decision to make. Are you going to be an egg or a potato? Are you going to grow closer to God or are you going to spurn him because he made you go through a hard time? We have to give joyful thanks to the Father because he's qualified us. Through his Holy Spirit, we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the holy people in the kingdom of light. Does that sound like a big deal? That's like the biggest deal. To be made worthy of a place that mortals have never been worthy of. We are not worthy by definition, and yet God makes us worthy. It is a scandalous blessing through his grace. 
Because, verse 13, it says, we have, uh, He, the Lord, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in the, into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So what John Wesley focused on there, and I forgot to grab his book, but he says the kingdom of darkness operates through coercion. That's bad. Coercive power is of, of the devil. But the kingdom of the Son is marked by freedom and light. So that Son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's what we're doing here. That's what we're all about. That's one way of putting the heart of the gospel, the good news message. John Wesley had some good words in the commentary I read on this that I wanted to turn to now. This should be the next slide. There it is. So talking about how Christ saved us, he said, The voluntary passion of our Lord appeased the Father's wrath, obtained pardon and acceptance for us, and consequently dissolved the dominion and power which Satan had over us through our sins. So when it's talking about freeing us from the dominion of Satan and bringing us into the kingdom of light, that's entirely because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, the atoning blood that he shed. That's the only reason that you and I can do any good works pleasing and acceptable to God. And that's our way of life. That's our story. That's the lens through which we see the world. I feel like I'm talking about basic things today. But, you know, as Martin Luther said, and I quote him all the time, I need to hear the gospel every day because every day I forget. So remember, remember. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. I heard that as a kid and did not think about it and did not care about that. But God is invisible. He dwells in impenetrable light, unapproachable light. Jesus is God in human form. People looked at him and didn't even know he was God. It's an incredible thing. And then it calls him something strange. It calls him the firstborn of all creation. There was a disturbing study came out a couple of years ago that showed a majority of evangelical Christians in America today believe that Jesus was the first creation that God made. The Nicene Creed is very clear. Classical Christian doctrine is very clear. Jesus was not created. He is not a created being. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. That's by nature what he is. But here it says flat out that he is the firstborn over all creation. And I'm a biblical literalist, so I have to accept that Christ is a created being then because born and being created is the same thing. And the answer is no. That the Bible is written, we've already seen, using metaphor, bearing fruit. Jeff, can you bear fruit? If I said, hey, I'm hungry, give me an apple. Can you grow one out of your arm? No, that's metaphor. And there are ways in which we speak poetically, decoratively, to convey one thing, but it's not true in all the ways. That's a metaphor. A metaphor helps us see one facet that's true, but it doesn't have a perfect correspondence in all things. So to say that Christ is the firstborn is not saying that he's a created being. It's saying that he holds a status among heaven and earth of preference. The firstborn in all ancient societies until very recently inherited the whole kit and caboodle. To be the firstborn is to be the one who's in charge. And that's what it's conveying here. He is, this is the place where he's pivoting to this issue that's bothering them about, okay, what spiritual powers do we need to please? And the answer is one, Jesus. Jesus, and he's going to talk about why, but he's making clear he has the status of firstborn. He's the, he's the one, the only one we need to be concerned with up there. Why? Verse 16, because, four is because, 
In him, all things were created, right? We've read this in John chapter 1. We read it in Genesis chapter 1. He was the word of God, right? Everything was made through God's powerful word. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities. These are all words that were used for different ranks of angels. We don't know this when we read this in English today. We know this when we read ancient stuff. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all these were understood to be heavenly powers, unseen powers that corresponded with what we could see on earth. And he's making clear all of these things were created by, through, for Jesus. They're all in submission to him. You don't have to worry about them when you're right with Jesus. All things have been created through him and for him. This is such good, firm language. You can, hold to, you can take this language to the bank. It's perfect. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the glue holding everything together. Were it not for Christ sitting enthroned at the right hand of God, everything would fall apart. Even when Christ took on flesh and was with us in his body, everything still held together through him. While he was ministering to us, he was holding the entire universe together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So a lot of people think that the church isn't in the Bible. It's something made by men, right? Jesus established it with Peter and his disciples. It's talked about throughout the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, it's called the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here we're reminded the head of the church is not the pastor. It's not the biggest giver. It's not some ancient patriarch who built this place. The head of the church is Christ himself. He is the head of the church. That means he's in charge. He's the boss. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So firstborn, again, this is used like a double meaning because he was the first to be resurrected from the dead in a resurrection body. In a literal, you know, you can get literal and say, well, Lazarus was raised before him. He was, but not in this way. When we're talking about receiving an eternal resurrection body made fit for heaven, Christ is the first, the first fruits among a great family. Hopefully, we're part of that family. Amen? He's the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And that's when it would be really smart to turn to Philippians and talk about how Christ, even though he's above all creation, he, choose, he to chose to take the form of a servant, of a slave, right? And being obedient... To the point of death on a cross, on a shameful cross, that's what made him worthy to be elevated above all of creation. So the whole Bible is meant to be read in consultation with each other. For right here, he's just establishing the supremacy over all other heavenly authorities. There is no heavenly authority that can get between you and him. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is such an incredible notion. When Christ took on a body and was with us, all of God's fullness was in him. You'd like to think you could see it, right? You can't. We don't have that spiritual vision. Some people are gifted that by the Holy Spirit sometimes, but odds are you and I have looked upon angels and not even seen it. And that if Christ Jesus appeared right in front of us now, unless he chose to be revealed, he would have the fullness of God and we wouldn't even see him for what he is. This is partly, not fully, partly why it's so important to be good to everyone you know everyone you see, strangers and friends alike, because you don't know who you're dealing with. And when God's Spirit dwells in them, when they're made in God's image, and you might be dealing with God in the flesh in some capacity, then it is a risky thing to go through your life abusing others. 
Verse 19, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is a, this is a wacky sentence because a lot of Christians today don't know this and don't care about it. Most Christians, it's really weird. They don't even think about angels. They don't think about demons or angels, except the really crazy ones, right? But you don't have just sane people in the middle who are going, yeah, there's demons and there's angels. They're just not the main characters of this story. And so there, there's a, a head of the heavenly powers, the triune God, against whom nobody can stand. They have, he has archangels uh, against whom Satan stands, but he can only stand for a time. And then there are minions on both sides. The ones that are in league with Satan were once upon a time made by God and in league with God, but rebelled against God. And that's referenced in Genesis. It's referenced in Isaiah. It undergirds a lot of what's written in the Bible. But here it says, because of what Christ did on the cross, shedding his atoning blood, he reconciles with things in heaven and on earth. That's what it just said, right? What verse was that? Thank you. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this notion that God, that Christ's blood is only enough to atone for some uh, predetermined elect. This is one of the scriptures that Arminians, most Wesleyans, look at and say, no, his blood is enough to atone for all, to make reconciliation with all. In fact, that's why he died, is to be reconciled with all creation, all creatures in heaven and on earth. Now, he doesn't do that against our will, right? Because that's how the coercive power of the devil and his dominion works, right? But it's through the free grace that God gives us that we can then choose him back after, he, after we understand what he's done to save us. Verse 21, he's going to talk about how awful we once were. Um, remember, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Okay, the jig's up. We were all born in evil. We're all born in sin. We're all... Uh, naturally inclined towards evil and that continually. So he's going to acknowledge that. We're not going to be defensive because we already know that to be the truth. Once you, y'all, were alienated from God. That means separated and strangers from. You were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, it's not the fullness, you know, even uh, it's, it's your disposition towards God. You were alien and what flowed out of that was evil behavior. That's what sin comes out of is alienation from God. But now, so back in the day, that's who you were. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. He's talking about that like that already happened. Like you are already holy and without blemish. Is that an expectation that we who are saved actually abandon our sins in this life and are holy and blameless? Yeah, we've encountered that idea many times. So that's one of the important doctrines for me to continue preaching is that God's Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sin. And if you are making room for continued perpetual sin in your life, you are not familiar with the power of God. Now, that's not to say that I've achieved it. Sin continues to show up in my life. But when it happens, it's because of my failure, not because of the failure of the Holy Spirit. So we are to be without blemish, free from accusation. Verse 23, here's the condition. This word if. That word if is an important word that, that implies conditionality. So if you're going to be in Christ, pure, without blemish, saved, 
have a, a, king, uh, a treasure in heaven reserved for you, if you're going to be welcomed into the kingdom of light, all these things we talked about, this word if, it all hinges on that. If you continue in your faith. If established and firm you are, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So we're in the middle of what was once the buckle of the Bible belt, where once saved, always saved was the doctrine of the day. It is still, for many people, the doctrine of the day. You had a mountaintop experience, you gave your life to Jesus, you were saved, whatever. Now you get to go to heaven, and you get to do whatever you want. That's the faith of once saved, always saved. That is not the faith of the Bible. That's not what you get here. You have this if clause. If you continue in the faith, if you continue in obedience and submission, if you continue established and firm, and if you don't move from the hope held out in the gospel, it's the condition. Not that you get saved, but that you stay saved, that you walk in a new way of life. And if you give up on that and you live like a worldly again, worldly and again, then you have given up your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Just like he doesn't make you take it, he also doesn't make you hold on to it. It's your choice. This is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He's saying this is the gospel. You've been given this wonderful treasure. You didn't earn it. There was nothing you could bring it about. Christ died for you. He's already purchased it. He's reached out to you to wake you up from your sin, to embrace that, to live by it. And you can. You can have all these treasures and the only condition is you persevere joyfully in the midst of persecution. Now, is that easy? No. But when we think about, okay, I have to endure joyfully in the midst of persecution, and the reward is eternal salvation in the kingdom of light alongside my brothers and sisters and Christ Jesus, Jesus himself in the new, uh, the new creation. Which is more powerful? This is hard or this is good? The goodness far outweighs the hardness. It's still a scandalously good deal. It's like if I had a, a brand new car worth $30,000 and I said, Mesa, if you have five bucks, it's yours. That'd be a good deal, right? That's the deal that we have with Christ Jesus. Now, we sometimes get fixated on, oh, it's really hard. That means that we're not understanding the blessed gift that's available to us. We need to focus much more on the gift than upon the hardness here and now. Right now, this world is passing away. Our lives are passing away. This is One day, we're all going to look back on this and go, oh, it's just a blip. It's a blink of an eye. I can't believe it felt so big to me at the time. We need to keep in mind that eternal vision of what awaits for us and how scandalously good it is against the not goodness of me and my life. All right, here's the closing section for this chapter. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. So he's modeling what he said. They need to rejoice, right? They need to give thanksgiving even in the midst of their endurance and perseverance. He's saying, I am rejoicing while I'm suffering. Remember, he's writing this from prison in Rome. He's about to be killed for his faith. He's saying, I'm rejoicing. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Some people read that and go, ooh. He thought something was lacking in Christ and what he did for our atonement, and that's not what he's saying at all there. What Christ did on the cross was perfect, complete, nothing else needs to be added to it. When he's talking about the body of Christ, he's not talking about the body that went on the cross. He's talking about what's the body of Christ? He says it right here, the church. And the notion is that the church needs to continue, that Jesus continues suffering through the church. That when we suffer, Christ is suffering. And suffering is what sanctifies and brings us closer to God. 
So Paul is completing these sufferings that Christ himself and his body is suffering. It's not that, oh, Christ left something lacking and I need to add to it. It's that the fullness of the suffering of Christ's body has not been reached yet. And instead of being spoiled and going, I'd really rather not suffer, I'd rather, you know, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? And then the answer is, no, there's a cross for everyone, a cross for you and me. The notion is that we participate in salvation by suffering as Christ suffered. Is that a hard concept? No. It's hard to live, but it's not hard to understand. Verse 25, I have become its servant. I think he's talking about the church. By the commission God get yeah, he's talking about the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you to you the word of God in its fullness. So remember, Christ Jesus appeared to Paul directly with this mission. So he is obeying Christ. This isn't some calling he felt in his spirit. He got a direct call from Jesus. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So from before, from the beginning of creation, there's been a mystery. That means it's not self-evident. People didn't know it. What was this mystery? And the mystery was that God is going to save all people. Not just the Jews, all people. It's been hidden from all of history up until this moment, the Christ Jesus event, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, and that's all of us, right? That's a mystery that was not known until right then. Verse 27, to them, the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, what's the treasure? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's one of those verses I just used to read over and go, yeah, yeah, holy words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The notion that you and I can be holy as God is holy is something that humans throughout the ages did not even know was possible. The notion that the Holy Spirit can so enter us and reform us so that we are dead to our former selves and a new creation living fully in his perfection, that's, that's something that is possible, that is something that we should strive towards, something that God scandalously offers to us. We often settle for so much less, do we not? God has chosen to make this known among the Gentiles, the notion that we can have Christ in us and that we can hope for glory. So what this is tapping into is stuff that we know was in the water back then. I don't know how many of you have ever read about Qumran. Most everybody's here about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? There was a part of a religious Jewish community of probably Essenes living in the Dead Sea area that believed in a concept called angelomorphism, the notion that humans can change into angels by living pure lives. And so you find these very strict rules. We do this, we don't do this. You know, they didn't ever touch anything clean with their, or they didn't ever touch anything unclean with their right hand. They used their left hand to do all the dirty things and they didn't have toilet paper back then. So that's an interesting fact. But that is a community based on, we're gonna be pure and holy and we're gonna become angels. The Christian story is you cannot become angels. Doesn't matter what rules you obey. Doesn't matter what you don't do. There is nothing you can do to become an angel. What you can become is Christ. Christ can be in you. You can be holy as God is holy. And that comes not by obeying rules, but by letting Christ reign in you. By completely dying to your old self and becoming a new creation in him, by completely submitting and enduring and persevering joyfully until God takes you home. 
It's a different story from what they had there, but these other ideas of obeying all these rules and being really strict, this is part of what he's arguing about in this book. Let's do this last paragraph. Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. What does admonish mean? We don't use that word very often anymore. It means correct, rebuke. If you're wrong, I'm going to tell you about it. Is that an appropriate thing to do? In the church, it is. In American culture, it's not. You know? But this is something that we have to teach one another. We have to correct one another. And that's just how it is. This is something that I've heard people in sports complain about. They say kids aren't coachable nowadays. If you correct them, they just can't take it. And not only that, their parents can't take it. And that's a sign of a, of a culture that is far from God. We need to be correctable. We need to be coachable. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We've already talked about the importance of knowledge or wisdom. So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's what we're aiming at. Entire sanctification for every person. That's the goal. It's way up here. Most of the American church is way down here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read my substack from yesterday. The goal is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up from there next week. It's a great book. We're going to get a lot more into this notion of angelomorphism, worship of angels, veneration of angels. If, if you don't know why I'm putting quotes around that, I'll explain it next week. Uh, but for now, what's the good news? What's the thing that we need to take home? I think it's just a basic reminder of what the gospel is. That despite the fact that we are born unworthy, Christ has given us treasures that are stored for us in heaven, and nobody can take that from us at all. And for us, the, the purpose of life is not in striving for anything, but understanding what Christ has already done for us and then joyfully submitting, doing good works, and persevering until Christ comes again in glory or until we die. Brothers and sisters, are you on this journey with me? Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Am I a soldier of the cross, number 239.